He says this, The relationship between a pastor and a congregation is inevitably one of the most important features in the life of a church. That is certainly true of the founding pastor. Sometimes, sadly, the relationship turns sour. Perhaps the congregation discovers that their leader has faults they had not noticed before when they had immaturely adored him. At other times, the fault lies with certain members of the congregation who cannot tolerate the leadership of others over a long period. And perhaps it's both. As we know, Paul wrote to many churches. He wrote to the Ephesians. He wrote to the Galatians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, the Romans, the Corinthians. And he wrote to ministers of other congregations. He wrote to Timothy. He wrote to Titus. Now, Paul did not have the exact same experiences, the same kind of relationships with everyone. You can't say that he had the exact kind of relationship he had with the Galatians that he did with the Thessalonians. Some people needed a hard word from his heart of love. The Galatians needed a hard word because they were playing around with legalism. The Corinthians needed a hard word because here was an especially gifted people that was especially divided. They needed hard words because of his love for them. And some were easier to get along with. And so his words emphasized encouragement to keep on keeping on, to keep up the good work. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter in particular, emphasizes encouragement to keep up the good work. So where do the Philippians stand here? Where are the Philippians on this spectrum? As we'll see in these opening verses, Paul and the Philippians are singing in harmony. In truth, there are still concerns that Paul raises. There are still relationships that need to be mended and all the rest. But the relationship between Pastor Paul and the Philippians is one full of love, full of joy, full of unity. And this relationship is foundational for church growth. Inwardly, primarily, that's what we were talking about in the beginning of this series, that inward growth, but also church growth outwardly. And this relationship is foundational in order for the congregation to thrive before the Lord and before others. Like all relationships, the pastor-church relationship is a street that goes both ways. It isn't just the pastor who's always driving over to their house, nor is it always the church who's driving the relationship with the pastor. For this relationship to thrive, each party must give its all, and must do so with love, with joy, with unity. The message this morning is that because Christ has given us his all, the pastor and the church give each other their all for the gospel. Look again with me at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so let's reflect for a moment on Paul's allness here in these still opening verses. Notice the all language, the every language. Several times in these two verses, he says either all or every or always. I thank my God in all my remembrance, always in every prayer for you all. He's very emphatic, isn't he? He has greeted this beloved church with grace and peace, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he begins this letter. And now what does he do? He lets them know that he is thanking God for them. He will later call them his joy and crown in Philippians 4, verse 1. His ecclesiastical crowning joy. Now, parents of multiple children will put their parents in a bit of a pickle. They will eventually ask their parents, which do you like the most? Come on now, mom, be honest. You know you like this child more than you like me. Come on, dad, be honest. You know you like me more than you like him. Who is your fave? Be honest. Don't lie before God. Now, Paul was never asked this, as far as we know. But you can imagine the church planting patriarch, Pastor Paul, at the head of the table, and before him, around him, are all of his spiritual offspring. You have the Thessalonians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Romans, and, and all the rest. You have, you have them asking Paul, which one do you like the most? Who's your fave? And the Galatians are like, well, we know we're not the, the fave. He didn't even give us a greeting for crying out loud. And he said some pretty hard things. Thessalonians say, well, I mean, if you read read his letters to us, we're pretty special. And the Philippians say, you know, that's right, okay. A strong case can be made for you, Thessalonians. But have you read Paul's letter to the Philippians? Have you read it lately? Because it's full of joy. It's full of love. It's full of us being a special place in his heart. We are the crowning joy in Paul's ministry. And Paul might say, they have a point. They do have a special place in my heart. This letter does demonstrate that special place that the Philippians have in Paul's heart. Not to say he doesn't love the others, but perhaps the Philippians are his faith. And I hope as we continue to go through this letter, you'll see that. A special relationship that Paul has with these dear saints. Now, Sinclair Ferguson enters into some kind of sanctified speculation, wondering what would Paul call this church if he were consulted on a church name? First joy and crown church of Philippi. That's what Ferguson says Paul would call this church. First joy and crown church of Philippi. What a great name. It certainly does testify to Paul's heart of love for these dear brothers and sisters. But be not mistaken, Paul was not on cloud nine with these Philippians. He wasn't ignoring the real sins in the church. And there were temptations not to be thankful to God for these Philippians, as we'll see. And we're all tempted, if we're honest, we're all tempted not to be thankful to God for other people, especially those that cause us some problems. Thankfulness at times is difficult. If you're a child or even an adult, just try to pray thanks to God for a meal that has green beans. It might be difficult to pray that prayer of thanks to God for those green beans. Oftentimes, mom in the mock household is asked, us having green beans? And it's not, are we having green beans? Because I really want to have green beans. It's, am I going to have to endure green beans? One day you will like them, O child. But more seriously, pray 
a prayer of thanks to God in context of conflict. Pray a prayer of thanks to God in the context of division, of heartache, of sin, where sorrows abound. Try to pray a prayer of thanks to God for those who have hurt you. It's a little bit harder, isn't it? And the temptation is not to pray a prayer of thanks to God, but a prayer of curse. They're not just loving, they're not loving me the way that they are supposed to love me. Paul doesn't give in to that temptation if he ever experienced it here with the Philippians. He says, no, no, dear Philippians, no sooner do I think of you than I thank God for you. As soon as you come in my mind, I, my mouth is praising God, thanking God for you. He's thanking the Lord for these dear Philippians. They are special in his heart. And the connection between thanksgiving and prayer should be obvious. Thanksgiving is an expression of the heart to God. And prayer is that means of expression. One writer says, giving thanks is the very life of prayer. Giving thanks is the very life of prayer. Have you thought about your prayers? What do they major on? Are they full of supplication? Are they full of prayer requests? And there's nothing wrong with prayer requests, nothing wrong with supplication, as Paul will say later on in his letter. But what do you major on? What's the big emphasis in your prayers to God? The emphasis ought to be thanksgiving. There are so many reasons to, give, to be thankful to God. Matthew Henry says, whatsoever is the matter of our rejoicing ought to be the matter of our thanksgiving. If there's something that you have joy for, joy over, then you should be thankful for. You should be prayerful for. It stands to reason then that since we are always to be joyful, and if you don't know that, Paul will say it, rejoice always. If you didn't get it the first time, again I say rejoice. We are always to be joyful. Because we are always to be joyful, we are therefore always to be thankful. And therefore, we are always to be prayerful. Always joyful. Always thankful. Always prayerful. The joy of the Lord leads us to thank to the Lord, and it is expressed in prayer to the Lord. Joy, thanks, prayer. Again, Paul is not ignorant of the challenges that these Philippian saints face. He is not unaware of certain people who have some beef with him. He doesn't avoid the hurt that some people have caused him. He's not denying the heresy of legalism that threatens to creep in this particular church. But he takes his own counsel that he will give them in chapter 4. And he focuses on whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent in Philippi. He focuses on that, and then he prays thanks to God for that. He focuses. He's being charitable, and he focuses on what is good. The good things that God is doing in the church at Philippi, that is where his focus is, and that is where his prayers go. He says, dear Philippians, whenever I pray for you, my prayers resound with thanks. That's what he's saying. Now, we know that Paul was no southerner, 
But notice whom all he has in mind. He says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all. For all y'all. I'm praying for all y'all. That's what he's saying. In his thanksgiving, he thanks God for everyone. In his prayers, he is thinking of everyone. When he considers his joy for the Philippians, he is joyful to God for everyone. Notice what he's not doing. He's not singling out a certain group. And he's saying, well, this group over here, man, they, are, they have really taken to my ministry. They are receiving this word that I give them. They're not kicking against the goads. They're not challenging me. They are receiving it, and they are growing and growing. And I'm, and I'm thanking God for them. But this group over here, they're a little harder to love. They're a little harder to hear. I'm not thankful to God for them. That's not what he's doing. He's thanking, thanking God for everyone. Those in Philippi that have received well his teaching, those who have not received it well, or those who are struggling to receive it, those who are in great company with one another, and those who are at odds with one another. He is thanking God. He is joyful to God for everyone. You can hear him saying, dear Philippians, I have every last one of you in my mind when I am praying for you to God. Think of him, say this, I'm praying for you, Euodia, and for you, Syntyche, that you will agree in the Lord. I'm praying for you, Lydia, thanking God that he has given you that hospitable heart 10 years ago, that you heard the gospel, that you believed, and that you even opened up your home to us. And we had that base of operations to continue to minister the gospel in Philippi. I'm praying for you, Epaphroditus, thanking God that you have worked yourself to the bone for the glory of God and for the good of these, your brothers and sisters. You can hear him saying, I'm, I'm praying for you, overseers, thanking God for his lavished wisdom upon you as you govern the affairs of this beloved church in Philippi. You are, you are overseeing the ministry of grace, and I'm thanking God for you and praying that you would continue to oversee wisely this ministry of grace, that you would continue to pursue peace and proclaim that peace. You can hear him saying, I'm praying for you, deacons, thanking God for his gift of service to you, that you have not left any stone unturned as you serve these living stones of God. He is praying for these and every other name that flashes in his mind. He loves them. He's thinking of them. He thanks God for them. He is joyful to God for them because he loves them. And dear saints, here at Cross Creek, know that you have your pastor's every remembrance. Know that I cannot get you out of my mind. Know that I cannot get you out of my prayers. And I don't want to. It's encouraging, isn't it, to know that people are praying for you? Just a few weeks ago, one of you, dear saints, I'm not going to tell who it is, but this person came to me at the end of the service and said, Pastor Mock, I want you to know that I, I love you and I pray for you every day. A few weeks back, months or so ago, I heard from another person who said that my husband prays for you. It's a, you're the first one on his prayer list. What an encouragement 
that is, to, to know that people are praying for me, for my family. Lord knows we need it. But we're praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm thanking God for you. Your, your faces, your names come to my mind every day. And as I have remembrance of you, I'm thanking the Lord for you. I'm praying to God for you. With all of your, with your sin issues, your sorrows, your struggles, relationship issues, and all the rest. Know, dear saints, that you have my every remembrance. But wait, there's more. I'm not the only one who prays for you. I'm not the only one who is thanking God for you or thinking of you. You have your other overseers. You have the other under-shepherds who co-labor with me for Christ to serve you. You have your elders, and your elders love you. Do you know that, cross Quakers? Do you know that your elders love you? And if you don't, perhaps the problem is on us. And sometimes it is. It's our fault. But I want you to know that we love you, that we think of you often, that at our session meetings we talk about shepherding concerns, things that require our prayerful attention, and we also rejoice We think about the wonderful things that God is doing in you and through you. And we have great cause for rejoicing. We pray for you. We thank God for you. But wait, there's more. Your overseers and I, we are not the best prayers the church has ever known. There's more. There's someone who prays the best prayers. There's someone whose prayers are always answered by our Father in heaven. And of course, you know who that is, Jesus Christ. Have you considered Jesus's daily prayers for you, his eternal remembrance of you? You can't, he, this is, this is amazing. I couldn't even get the words out because I was just stunned by how amazing this is. We cannot leave Christ's mind. We cannot escape his prayers. Oh, yes, I've, I've prayed for you, and sometimes I forget about who needs what prayers. Sometimes the overseers, we, we don't know certain names. We forget things. We don't, we don't have all the details with the prayer requests, right? We, we don't get it. We're not perfect prayers. But none of that happens. None of those imperfections are in the throne of grace where Jesus Christ is. You always have... Christ's eternal remembrance of you, and he prays for you perfectly. He brings your petitions to his Father through the power of the Spirit, and he loves you with an everlasting love. Surely that is to fill your heart with great joy, to know that Jesus Christ loves you, thinks of you all the time, had thought of you even before you were born, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a covenant with each other, not just to create you, but to save you because you were going to be sinners. Not to leave you in your sin, but to rescue you out of that sin and misery and to bring you into an estate of salvation by the one Redeemer, Jesus Christ. 
What beautiful news that is. What joy should fill all of our hearts because of his unfailing, prayerful intercession. And Paul encourages these Philippians with a note of joy. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Making my prayer with joy. He's not coming before the throne of grace with grumbles, with complaints, with, oh, i got to bring these Philippians to you again, Jesus. I don't want to do it. No, but with joy. With love for them, with great joy. His heavenward posture is full of joy. And some have summarized Paul's letter to the Philippians in this way. I rejoice, you all rejoice. Which is a good summary. Paul rejoices, and so Paul exhorts the Philippians to rejoice. And it is true that joy features prominently in this letter. Joy or rejoice, some version of that, occurs 16 times in this letter. Now, if you've read Philippians all the way through, it's just four short chapters. It would take you probably eight, ten minutes, unless you're a fast reader. And you will see very quickly joy, rejoice, all over, 16 times in this short letter. And to put that in comparison, he uses the word joy 15 times in his second letter to the Corinthians, which is a much longer letter, 13 chapters, many more words than you have in Philippians, and still less, just barely, less than what he says in Philippians. And so joy pervades this letter because it fills Paul's heart for them. Now, if we're going to consider what joy is, we have to first consider God's joy. God's joy. What is God's joy? God's joy is God's infinite delight in himself, in his eternal decree, and in his own people. God's infinite delight in himself, in his eternal decree, and in his own people. He's perfectly delighting in the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit infinitely delight in one another. And they delight in what they are doing. And the decree that they have set out, it's a perfect decree for the salvation of the nations, to the glory of God. And there's infinite delight that he has in us, his people. Psalm 1611 says that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy, that there are pleasures forevermore. There isn't just a, a smattering of joy in God's presence. You can find it here in a corner, over there under a table. No, there's fullness of joy in God's presence. There are pleasures forevermore. These are not pleasures that you know, just last for a time, for a season, a few, few months, 10 decades, century. forevermore. Because God is eternal. The very presence of God is the center of all joy. The fullness of joy. As we read in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He is content by his love for you. He is eternally content, satisfied with his love for you because you cannot get any higher his love for you. He's not working his way up to love you more. 
as you shape up, as you become more and more obedient. More and more obedient. Or his love doesn't go down, his joy for you doesn't go down as you wander, as you fail. His joy is not tied to your performance. His love for you is not tied to your performance. He is always eternally rejoicing over you with gladness. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He takes pleasure. He takes delight in us, his people. Which is staggering when you realize what kind of people he takes delight in. When you realize your own sin, you say, wow, I mean, I don't take delight in what I've done. Of course, the Lord doesn't delight in your own sin. He delights in you. And he's working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Pastor Josh Owen, a few weeks back in one of his sermons, he modified the larger catechism's question the answer, he says, the chief end of God is to glorify God and fully enjoy God forever. God's chief end is to glorify himself and to fully enjoy himself forever. God, God's joy is his infant delight in himself, in his eternal decree, and in us, his own people. And the Lord then expects nothing less for us, his creatures, made in his image that we would glorify and enjoy him forever. And there it is, that we would enjoy him forever, that we'd have joy in him for all eternity. That is the chief end of man, to fully enjoy God forever. Our joy in the Lord is that gladness of body and spirit, the delights in the Father who made us, in the Son who has saved us, and in the Holy Spirit who has sealed us forever. And so our joy is to be grounded in the gospel of the Trinity. Without the gospel, there can be really no true joy. There can be no lasting gladness of soul and body. As Paul remembers these Philippians, always and ever with joy, he does so because of verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He praises God, he thanks God, he prays to God for them because of God's grace to them, because of God's peace to them. In other words, if there's anything honorable, if there's anything just or pure or lovely or commendable, if there's anything excellent from the Philippians, it made its way first from God. Grace came down. Peace came down and filled the church in Philippi. Paul knows that if there's anything good, if the people are bearing any fruit, it's because they are attached to the vine, Christ, because they come from above. They've been born from above. The Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, works wonders in the Philippians. And so Paul praises God with all joy. His heart is filled with thankfulness. His heart is truly joyful because of the gospel. But again, yes, there are sins and sorrows in this letter to the Philippians. Tears and troubles abound. Anxiety threatens the soul that is at rest. Conflicts arose as well. Just consider these five, these five trials or, or issues. In chapter 1, verse 17, some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. There are different motives for proclaiming Christ. And that's an issue that Paul has to wrestle with, has to issue or has to wrestle with, with the Philippians. Help them process that. 
In chapter 2, verse 27, Epaphroditus had a near-death experience serving these Philippians. And that was hard on Paul. He had this dear co-laborer almost die. It was hard for Paul. It was hard for the Philippians. Of course, it was hard for Epaphroditus as well. Many Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 18, many Philippians now walk as enemies of Christ. That must have been very hard on Paul to have begun the ministry in Philippi, to have ministered the gospel to them time and again, only for some of them eventually to show that they actually hate Christ. That, that brought tears to Paul. Or Iodia and Syntyche, they still need to agree in the Lord in chapter 4, verse 2. That, that conflict still hangs in the air. And Paul wants that remedied. He wants Yodi and Syntyche to be reconciled to another, to agree, to have the same mind. Or in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul noted the kindness of the, of the Philippians to share in his trouble. And so make no mistake, there are troubles, there are concerns, there are hurts, there are sins, there are sorrows in this letter, in this church, this church of Philippi, just like there are in every single church. If you think the grass is greener on the other side, the other church, that's only because you're not well acquainted with what's going on in that church. And I don't mean that every church has the same number of problems, but every church has sinners. And so every church has sorrows and sins. Every church has leaders who lead well or poorly, Every church has members who worship God well or poorly. Every single church. That's not to say that we can't grow. That's not to say we can't become more friendly, that we can't become more warm, that we can't become more worshipful or joyful or united. Of course we can. Whoever said that we've arrived this side of heaven? In fact, Paul even tells us that we won't arrive until Christ comes and transforms our lowly bodies to glorious resurrected ones. So there will always be those trials, those concerns, those sin issues. But that does not translate into a perpetual state of joylessness. It doesn't translate into a joyless church until X, Y, or Z is resolved. Once this issue is resolved, then we can have joy in the church. Some have asked, well, where is the joy of the Lord? Well, it's from heaven, and it's in you if you are in Christ. <laughs> Don't think that that was taken away. Joy is not tied to the absence of problems, but to the awesome person of Jesus Christ. You want to know where the joy of the Lord is? It's right there, in Christ. And you're in him. Delight in him. Indeed, we might even say that our true joy is inextricably linked to pain. Not the absence of problems, not the absence of pain, but linked to pain. Is this not the gospel? For joy, Jesus endured the cross. Suffering, joy, the cross. The gospel, the good news, assumes that bad news of what awaits all those who are without Christ. If there's no gospel, there's no joy. 
but with the gospel, all joy, full joy. Because we have the full Jesus Christ. He doesn't hold out on us. He gives, he gives us himself entirely. This is good news, is it not? But I see a lot of faces that are not showing me that this is good news. This is joyful news for crying out loud in praise. See what I did there? Yeah, okay. We're crying aloud in praise. Rose is getting it. Okay, she's happy about this. This is wonderful news. Let's look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel. And so we see that this joy is not the joy of one. It's not one person in the congregation in Philippi has this joy, and anyone else doesn't. This is not joy of some, it's not just some isolated gladness. This is gospel fellowship. This is gospel joy. This is gospel joy, and it ought to be shared. It's to be involved in true fellowship. This is why Paul rejoices so much over the Philippians, because of their share in the gospel with him. This kind of fellowship is the only kind that lasts forever. It is the gospel kind. In chapter 1, verse 27, he mentions their striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 29, he mentions how they have the mark of the gospel fellowship. They have suffering. Now, we know there are, there are all kinds of fellowships. There are all kinds of committed groups for a common cause, for a common interest, common mission statement or vision. And many of these fellowships have a lot of factors in common. They have people. They have similarities. They have giving their time, giving their talents, giving their money, giving other resources. And this word here can even speak to the association of a marriage. Paul speaks here of the close relationship that we have with God and so with one another. We have a gospel partnership because we have God. Now, John, in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 3, and 4, has these themes of joy and fellowship in his mind as well. Listen to his words. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's saying to this congregation, we have fellowship with God. We know the Father. We know the Son. And we're writing these things because we want you to have fellowship with us. And when you have fellowship with us, then our joy may be complete. This, then, is a spiritual, gospel-grounded fellowship that has real application today. And as we will keep reading, Paul has in mind real tangible ways to be in gospel fellowship with one another. David Strain, in his commentary, summarizes memorably four things of how they have been partners with Paul, with their money, or with their message, with their money, with their mission, and with their maturity. The Philippians are partners with Paul in the message of the gospel. They love the gospel as Paul loves the gospel. They're all about the gospel. They support the gospel. And they are partners with Paul by giving their money to support him while he's in jail. To support the going forth 
of the gospel. That even though Paul is in chains, the gospel is not bound. And they support that mission, that money. And they are partners with Paul by giving their beloved Epaphroditus, their man, so that the mission of the gospel will continue. And they are partners with Paul by giving themselves to God through Paul for their growth, for their maturity. They know that God has given to them this apostle for their growth. And they are submitting to God. And one way they show that submission is saying, Paul, teach us. Show us how to be more like Christ. So they support, they partner with Paul with their message, money, mission, and maturity. This is a gospel fellowship. And because this partnership is grounded in the gospel, it has eternity in view. It is a committed fellowship. It is a partnership for long haul. Look at the rest of verse 5. From the first day until now. The Philippians put their money where their mouth was. They supported Paul literally with money. He needed money. He was in prison. He needed food. He needed real tangible things, and they supported Paul with their money and with their men by sending Epaphroditus to him. They had supported Paul from the start of his ministry until now. And Paul is praising God for their perseverance, for their commitment to him, which is really just a demonstration of their commitment to God, their devotion to God their love for God, their joy in God. This is a fellowship that they are committed. So many examples could be given to illustrate committed fellowship. But I think only one will do. Fellowship of the Ring, obviously. It's, got, it's right there in the title. It's low-hanging fruit for a reason. That group of men and dwarves, Elves, wizard, hobbits, can't forget the hobbits. That group committed to Frodo for the destruction of the ring. And before that fellowship is even formed, there is some uncertainty in the hobbits' hearts about one Strider. You remember him? The prancing pony, just right after that scene. They don't know. Should they, should they trust this guy or not? Is he for them? Is he against them? Who is this guy? And the guy is named Aragorn. And he says, deferring to Samwise, he says, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will. There's my commitment. If I can give my life, I will. I will live and I will die for you, Frodo, for this fellowship, for this purpose to destroy the ring. I'm in it from start to finish. But you say, well, Pastor Mock, I am no Aragorn, son of Arathorn. It's true. You're actually better. Remember our lesson from last week. You are saints. You are devoted by God, for God. You've been set apart from the world. God has cut off the old ways of the world, and he has brought you into the kingdom of his son. 
and my respect to Tolkien, but Aragorn doesn't exist except on paper and imagination. And you do exist. But even if Aragorn, son of Arathorn, did exist, have you considered the lineage? And have you contrasted that lineage with your own lineage, where you come from? You are from God. And there's no better genealogy to be called a son of God, a daughter of God. You are children of the king. You are sons and daughters in the son. One of the reasons I love not teaching ABF is not because I don't love teaching, which I do, but I love to visit all the classrooms for a few minutes. And very regularly, I will, inter- I will say something at some point in the service that is because of something that happened in one of those classes. And two things happened today. First, you already heard about with the children learning that Mary gave birth to a child through the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is when I was with the, uh, in the four- and five-year-old class, sat down with all those boys and one Iris. And the teacher was talking about names. And she said, a question across the room there, the circle, is, why did your parents name you that? And she turned to one boy, why did your parents name you that? And he said, because I'm a lovely boy. I'm a lovely boy. That's him over there. He's not boasting, oh, how lovely I am. What, what does he know? What does this dear child of William and Hannah know? What does he know? He knows that he's loved by his parents. He knows who he is. He knows where he comes from. And he knows that he's loved. Do you know where you come from? Do you know how loved you are by your Father in heaven? By Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the dead for you? And by the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for an eternity? You are joined to Jesus. And so you are joined to one another. As he will not break fellowship, let us work hard at preserving our relationships, at persevering in our love for God and for one another. Dear saints, recommit yourself to the partnership of the gospel. Ferguson says, being a Christian means entering into a partnership with others to share in the work of Christ. That is why we are here, saints, to share in this gospel fellowship, this partnership with Christ. He has given us his all, and so I, as your pastor, give you my all. And you give me and one another your all. This is the glorious partnership of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. A great God, infinitely joyful, infinitely delighting in yourself, in your decree, in us, your people. We thank you. We have every reason to thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, we desire that you would increase our joy, increase our joy for you, our joy in Christ, increase our joy for one another, our thanks 
to you for one another, our growth in love for you and one another. We know that by your Spirit, this is not only possible, but it is certain. We pray for it even now. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come on up to prepare for communion.